0: Hello, everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website www.projectmedtech.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading over to our website. Project MedTech is an interview-style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories, advice, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. We have three events coming up this year year that we have planned. Our Midwest Showcase in Cleveland, Ohio, our workshop on commercialization and go-to-market strategy the day after in Cleveland, Ohio, and our Startup Symposium October 25th and 26th in Houston, Texas. For more information, check those out on our website and use the discount code PM20 PM20, for a 20% discount. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Lauricella, and our guest, Greg Walters at Excision Medical discuss exiting his first company, what it takes to achieve an exit, the process of an acquisition, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Greg Walters.
1: Greg, thank you very much for being here with us today. I'm very happy that we were initially introduced by another MedTech Money podcast guest episode of Joe Rafferty, who put us in contact not that long ago. And you and I had our first call together, and your story is absolutely phenomenal. So can't wait to have it recorded here on the MedTech Money Powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. So before we jump into some questions that I have for you, as well as who you are and also the company that you're currently building. I wanted to jump into it and let you know that I've talked to medtech entrepreneurs and investors from around the world. And what I've discovered is that there definitely isn't a silver bullet or specific formula or even magic about how to build a medtech startup, let alone raise capital or even invest it for that matter. So my goal here is to extract insights so that we can demystify this process for MedTech innovators and help them so that they can ultimately benefit from this information. And the audience listening in is entrepreneurs, investors, strong partners of our industry. And what I want to do is share stories and advice to help our listeners learn from you. And more specifically for those first-time founders or CEOs that literally have no clue of what lies ahead of them on their journey of entrepreneurship as well as raising capital. So I thought the best place to start is from learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And so once again, before we get into who you are and your background, I'm going to open up with some questions. The first one being, in your opinion, what's the lifeblood of a medtech startup and what keeps startups alive?
0: Hmm.
2: That's a great question. Well, at first, let me just say it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. And uh, this should be fun. You know, I, I, when you ask the question of what's the lifeblood, I think, you know what, it's really what's in the lifeblood. Right. And there's a million things, but for me, it's really creative and scrappy people. And the people make all the difference. Right. So you've got to have a team that really is willing to put their shoulder to the wheel and is also just really flexible and understands that this is just not going to be this normal prescribed product development sort of thing. I've tried to slot in people that come from maybe established companies and they may not have the startup mindset. So there's a startup mindset which is we're young, we're scrappy, we're going to do what we have to do. If I have to go to Home Depot, I'm going to Home Depot. And so for me, I think it's really just people. People, people, people. Really smart, dedicated, creative, scrappy people.
1: And I'm going to do a, a part B on that question uh, just because so, you brought up an interesting point. Is there anything that you can share and if you if you haven't figured it out no problem, but is there anything that you can share with all your experience when interviewing people to join your company? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> that you could yeah. figure out how if they're scrappy or or you know, now that you've created that delineating factor of, okay, are you ready for the startup and do you have that startup mentality or not? I'm sure throughout your experience of great hires, good hires, and probably terrible hires, um, you've learned what to interview for.
2: Yeah, I really have. I mean, I think you're really just looking for somebody that's in a position where they have some flexibility in their life, right? Because somebody that has this really prescribed career route that they have to follow and that they have to progress through, that's probably not your guy or or, or gal. It, it it has to be somebody that's sort of willing to they, they they've been in a corporate job or they've been in a position where they're just ready to do something a little different or they've forever been in startups, and that's the world where they thrive. And so you can tease that out in an interview process. So I think you can really figure out pretty quickly whether people are your sort of entrepreneurial types. And also if you just look at the types of projects that they've done, right? So if you're talking to a guy that really has put together design control documentation, that might not be the your initial hire, right? <laughs> right. So, so then moving on, and thank you for the insight.
1: Once again, with spoiling alert, you've been through an acquisition and now you're building company too. And you have a lot of experience that we're going to tease out on this podcast episode. But from your experience, what's the hardest part about building a medtech startup?
2: Trying to keep track of the balls, right? So there is, well, there are just endless things that you have to worry about, right? You got to figure out how to start up the company. You got to figure out how to put an equity plan in place. You got to figure out how to do patents. You have to figure out this, what must be 15 different things. And, you know, I I liken this to the Staples commercial that was on about six or seven years ago. And the guy's name was Dave. And Dave was the only guy in the store and he did everything. And that's what it's like when you're doing a startup by yourself or with one other person. There's a lot of things that you have to do. You're not really sure what the priority should be. And so you really just have to manage the balls in the air and you have to really just, Try to figure out what's the most important thing for me to do today. What's the most important thing for me to do this minute? I'm in a part B mood today. So um, on that then, you know,
1: spoiling alert again, you jump from being an R&D guy into being an entrepreneur. And you just talked about the hardest part is actually how do you track those balls and keep all the balls in the air properly. That transition period, Was there one silver bullet or at least a few things that you could say that you can reflect on and be like, okay, I was an R&D guy who all of a sudden did what I'm supposed to do, research and development and create and engineer, and I thought of something that I want to go out and build, but I had to wrap a company around it, which is not my forte. It hasn't been my forte. I'm an R&D guy, but all of a sudden, that's what I'm going to do, and there's this transition between Okay, I'm an R&D guy who came up with an idea, but now all of a sudden I have to wrap a business around it, and I don't know that piece about it. Right. Any, any. I mean, we'll jump into the longer story later on in that, but I just wanted to jump on that now. What, what are some of the things that you can look at and being like, okay. How did I learn to keep the balls in the air, attract the balls as a guy who was responsible for
2: that before? I think there's two parts to that. So the the first part for me was really understanding that networking was such a big, big part of this process, right? So if you're embedded into an R&D organization and company, right, you're day in, day out, you're focused on the company's objectives, and you're really not focusing on building a large networking, well, a large network for yourself, Right. And so the very first thing I did is I I bet I had lunch every Tuesday thir- or Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday for, for for two three years as I built sort of this network and I have to say you know like the Philadelphia region is just rich in all of these people that will tell you Uh, how they did it or what they should do, whether it's lawyers or other entrepreneurs or, you know, uh, people associated with funding sources. And so the networking was really key to try to figure out, okay, what's what's the most important thing to do? But the second most important thing to do is to is to focus on one thing at a time, because you really just have to you've got to get stuff done. And sometimes the only way to get stuff done is to shut the door and get it done. And so normally I spent the morning figuring out all the important things, trying to set up the schedule for the day or who I was going to talk to. And then the afternoon, just putting my head down and filing that patent or working out that design or figuring out that next step. So
1: Love that. And the other newest part, or I should say new learning skill that you did beyond tracking the balls was raising capital when you started your company. And now you're redoing it again with your second company in your history of entrepreneurship and think about those days when you never had raised capital before and then all of a sudden you did, what is the best and the worst piece of advice you think you've ever received on raising capital?
2: Well, you know, I looked at this question earlier and I thought, there's no way to answer this. The the best, honestly, I think the best advice I've heard is that it's really hard, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the worst advice is it's even harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, uh, I, think crazy. I, I think someone said to me it's soul sucking. Um, and uh, honestly, I think what you have to realize is it's just it's just a process, and it takes a long time to find that right partner. But it's worth it because you've got a really good idea, and it's okay. I think what you learn from every step of the process, even though it's it can be arduous, and even though you know, maybe the conversation you're having isn't gonna work out, but the conversation you're having is going to help you with the next conversation you have, right? And so it's just a bit of a process and it's okay if it's hard. And it is, the truth is, is that you're going to be accepting people's money and you really want to make the best of it and they have to be convinced. And that is a process. So
1: with all this experience and life experience, do you have a book in mind that you would recommend the audience and it could be professional or about entrepreneurship, or it could be an awesome fictional story, but what book would you recommend all of us to read? And watch? yeah,
2: well, it, and it has nothing to do with fundraising. Um, but my, my favorite book of all time is a short history of nearly everything by Bill Bryson. <laughs> and I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it's a little bit of a sciencey geeky sort of, uh, it really literally is all the things that we know and all the things that we don't know. And I think back on people that have learned these incredible things over our history of science development, and I think through how entrepreneurial these people were, and scrappy, just trying to figure things out. And it's amazing what we know, and it's also really amazing what we don't know. True. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great book that'll help you reflect on that.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And now I think this is starting to get overlapping and tying some of the points that you brought together, but we'll we'll make it a clean cut answer. You've become an entrepreneur. You've been a CEO now twice. What's the job of a CEO and what's the biggest challenge of a CEO? Mm.
2: Yeah, honestly, I think the uh, the job of a CEO is to really to set the vision, right? To sort of create the overall top level plan. But then it's really supporting, facilitating, and encouraging your team, right? And so In the middle of all that is building a team that can really get the existing job done, right? And what's so different about any different project or any different company or any different endeavor is the circumstances are always a little different. And the team that you need to execute those circumstances is something that you really have to give some thought to because the team that you had for the last job might not be the team you need for this job. Mm -hmm. And you really have to give that a thought. So I think for me, it's all about creating the team and supporting the team, facilitating what goes on and trying to set that top level sort of vision. You're the guy that says, this is what good looks like or this great looks like, right? And consequently, the hardest part of of being a CEO in my mind is really navigating that with the external pressures and trying to shield your team from all the external pressures. Because mm-hmm. there's just a ton of external pressures, right? It's the, it's the shifts in direction. It's the, it's the worries about a patent issue. It's the worries about a funding issue. It's the, and your job is to really shield your team so they can be awesome. I don't think I've never actually
1: asked this question before, but I've heard the point that you brought up. Um, I actually struggle with it myself, to be honest with you. But a question that I would love to pick your brain on is how. How do you go about shielding your team on that one? So like if on one hand, you have to be a strong communicator as a leader and be able to create a vision and set that vision, but also communicate that vision to not only your team and your partners, when life gets in the way and things are blocking that vision, not necessarily forever, but they become hurdles and and we'll call them challenges. You know, how did you decide, not necessarily what in in terms of the details, but how did you internalize like what you communicate with your team what you should shield them for etc like what's that fine balance look like I struggle with it that's why I'm asking yeah
2: that. well it is it's also it's a struggle and it's also a struggle depending on the team member that you're talking with right because everybody's a little different and their risk tolerance is a little different so some of your team members you can be a little more frank with and others you might have to be less frank with right but I think we always we've always thrived on transparency and I think that you know, from, uh, from a team development perspective, you're really, really doing your best to encourage people on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis, and uh, I think it's just the showing up, being enthusiastic, and also just understanding how hard it is what we're doing, right? So I think there's an acknowledgement that trying to innovate, trying to create something new, Trying to develop. And so part of creating a, a company or a technology, right? Remember, we have to design the tech. We have to design the model. We have to design the training. We have to design the way to build it. We have to design the manufacturing. <laughs> like we have, to, it's not just that you're making a design, right? You're making all of these different elements to make the design possible. And it's a, it's a big task. And I think acknowledging that goes a long way with a team. Right. Just just letting them know that what you're doing is hard. I know today wasn't great, but what you're doing is hard and tomorrow will be better. The, the next question I want to pick your brain on,
1: and I have fun with this one is if you had a magic stick, what would you change about the capital raising process? I mean, we all know that capital raising is hard, like you mentioned earlier. Right. But if you had your magic stick and you like one aspect of it, you yeah. just could wave your
2: wand and change something about it. What would you do? I just can't we have an app? This, can't there be an app on my phone where I put in how much I want to raise, what I want to get and then just wait for offers? <laughs> that's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. I want the Uber to show up on time. Yeah. yeah would- it, it I- is, but you know what I what I love about I just there's so much opportunity, but the truth is is that with opportunity comes a lot of scrutiny, right? So um, yeah, it's never there's never going to be an app, but yeah. if I had a magic stick
1: that's what you create. I think a lot of people are nodding their head and agreeing with you, and I'm sure a lot of people either have worked on it or are trying to work on it. But you know, the one thing that I keep on coming back to and learning from, whether it's all the entrepreneurs I've talked to or the the investors themselves, it's like money is very, very personal, and there and there's all different motivations of whoever's either asking for it or delivering it, and you know, creating an algorithm or machine learning or artificial intelligence, you name it, to be able to get inside all of our heads perfectly align it maybe someday some yeah good luck right yeah exactly but anyway um so we're going to get to it now you're you have a name of your company and it's called excision medical and i love asking this question because sometimes it's a little bit complicated sometimes it's philosophical sometimes it's just straight (laughs) in the middle but what does the name of your company mean excision medical and is there a story actually behind the name
2: uh, probably not so much. I mean, um we're cutting tissue. we're we're removing the uh, a, a large portion of the leaflet of the aortic valve or heart valves. And so for us, our, for us, we we just really we understand that we're excising tissue. So it's really that simple. But it's a bit of a play on the previous name. So the last company that that I ran was Essential Medical, and excision Medical sounded pretty similar. And I thought that sounded interesting, and but the truth be told is that I mix them up quite a lot, which is less interesting. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> so you're, sometimes you're still back in the day. I, yeah, still, right, yeah. Medical. Okay. It's, hard.
2: yeah. It's, it's hard to move on.
1: So thank you for sharing with us thus far, everything coming out of your brain and experience, but now we want to know who you are. So there's people running around, listening to this on the treadmill, working out, driving to work, okay. driving home from work are you Greg we want to know now who are you so Greg Walters the man behind the voice thus far where are you from how did you build your life personally professionally whatever you'd like to share academically leading up to where you are now finding excision medical
2: yeah wow you know I've had a really lucky story um so I started off as a physics major um and as you mentioned all along I've been an R&D guy or I would really say a product development guy And I graduated from um, from Millersville University with a degree in physics. I graduated with six other majors or six other people. (laughs) Such a huge class. Right. Um, But I got a really I got really good training on the technical side of things. And I've always been interested in that. I went to work for General Electric for five years. I was in their corporate engineering development program. Really lucky story for how I got involved with that. I followed a friend from uh, General Electric into a company called Kenzie Nash. And I got lucky enough for a 17-year run at Kenzie Nash to get really involved with a product called AngiSeal and seven other cardiology platforms in our endovascular work at Kenzie Nash. And I had endless mentors and terrific friends and technical advisors through that process. And I got really adept at what was going on in the cardiology space in this sort of mid-90s through 2005 or so, that sort of thing. And uh, I spotted this terrific opportunity to create an angiocele-like product or a Me Too angiocele. And I understood sort of the legal and the patent uh, opportunities associated with that. And I left Kenzie Nash in 2009, started uh, Essential Medical, if I can get that name right. I started Essential Medical in 2009, and that was about a an 8 or 9 year run until we exited essential medical selling that to Teleflex. and at X- essential medical we created two products we called a created a small bore closure device and this is this is femoral arterial closure and a large bore closure device one we called Axeal and another we called uh, Manta and the, there's a funny play on the name Exil when you think about naming. So if we have time, you can ask me about that later. Um, Manta became a very successful large bore closure. It attracted Teleflex as an acquirer and we sold the business to Teleflex in 2018. Wow. Um, and by that time we had built a company of about 40 people um, and 40 of you know sort of my best friends and colleagues and just these amazing people who, Who rose uh, to just do incredible work uh, for the company, and I think just had a really, really fun, uh, fun job along, a fun time along the way. I have some fantastic pictures from Essential, and one of them is the celebration champagne bottles that we had stacked on the windowsill from the very beginning milestone that we that we had to the very end milestone that we had, which was to sell the company, and there have to be fifty of them. Wow. And All of those yeah. champagne toasts were fun and raucous, and it was great. It was. That, great. I mean, if anything, I
1: get out of that is it sounds like a a story of confidence because if you kept the first champagne bottle as opposed to just throwing it away, you were you were really confident in the fact that you were going to keep on oh, it. We,
2: we kept it. it. We kept it. We signed it. We wrote dates on it. Yeah. So oh, that's it was, awesome. Great. I love it those
1: stories. Really
0: and then,
2: I, and then I took, a, I took a brief break. I worked for Teleflex for a year. Um, and uh, my wife uh, has a really big job and uh, she's terrific. She works for a pharmaceutical company. We had an opportunity to move to uh, Vienna, Austria. And so literally on the same day we closed the deal with Teleflex, she said, Hey, guess what? I got the, I got the job in Austria. Do you want to go? So I'd like to, I think so. Maybe let me Google where Vienna is. <laughs> 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 and, and you know and, and my googling history is important because there's a whole lot you have to do as an entrepreneur just to figure everything out right what does this term mean what does that term mean um, and then we so we spent uh, we spent three years in Vienna I did a, a year of working for Teleflex and then I did a year and a half of riding a bicycle over there um, lots and lots of miles on all those uh, roads in Austria and then started uh, started up a, a excision um, with uh, three other colleagues and uh, we've been working on that for a year and a half um, so I flew back and forth in that last year in at Vienna in Vienna and ended up here uh wow when did we come back 21 22 so it's been I've been home a, a year or so and we've created a nice facility and this a really cool startup called excision and we've got about 10 people working pretty steady r- have raised some really good seed m- money and we have a really neat technology so
1: and home is Philadelphia, like you. Alluded home is to.
2: Philadelphia. Yeah, home has always been Philadelphia. I have one rule about a startup and that it cannot be further than five minutes from my home. That's an awesome rule, which there's I there's not a lot of perks with a startup, right? It's got to be coffee, Wi-Fi and commute.
1: There, <laughs> coffee, Wi-Fi and commute. I like that. OK, OK. Um, so you actually came up with the idea to start the organization when you were still over in Vienna, and then you did the back and forth until you committed to, yep, this is my next three, five, 10 years of development.
2: Yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, so naturally, coming out of the essential experience, we I had developed just um, really great relationships with 100, 150 key opinion leaders, um, good friends, good colleagues. and universally, I think they all know me as somebody that's willing to work together to, you know, accomplish a goal to try to do something new. So I said to pretty much all of them, if you have ideas, come see me. If you want to do something, let me know. And um, uh, Dave Wood uh, came to me and said, look, I got I got some things that I think are really important and I'd like to talk with you about it. So I flew to Vancouver I met with Dave and um, we figured out what we wanted to do and uh, we added uh, dr gary rubin and janaris Sathananthan to that mix and we worked kind of quietly for oh 18 18 months 24 months and uh, now i think we have something really cool to share so very cool and so now like you said you wrapped up a little bit of seed
1: financing for excision and now you're you're out raising again in this current climate that we're in
2: Yeah, you know, uh, something I heard along the way, and I I think it's honestly largely true, is that you're always trying to raise money and you're always trying to sell the company. So, yeah, the truth is, is you're raising money constantly. And, um, you know, uh, we've always joked about panhandling, you know, because sometimes that's what it takes, right? If you're going to sell apples, you got to sell apples. But (laughs) right. Yeah, so we're We're going to do a Series A. We're pretty well-funded for the rest of this year. We'll do a Series A as we get to, to the end of the year, and I'm starting that process now. Um, and luckily, I think we've had a lot of supportive investors uh, from the essential process or from the essential experience. So, nice. Yeah.
1: Well, you gave a little
2: bit of history on the business just now and then also
1: alluded to it earlier on. But now that we know who you are, and thank you very much for sharing that story, fun story, good story, what is excision medical? Just if you can spend a little bit more time on the technology itself or what you can share.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're a leaflet modification company. So we're a structural heart TAVR based company. There's an opportunity in the TAVR space where <clears throat> TAVR valves are going into younger and younger individuals. And there's a, a TAVR is effectively the solution for uh, aortic stenosis. And it's a big market. Um, but with that big market then comes patients that are going to get valves earlier, and the valves are going to be um, in the patients longer. And we're going to start seeing a lot of valve failures. and there needs to be a solution for valve failures. and that solution is a valve and valve or a secondary taver. And so our technology helps to facilitate that secondary taver with the removal of a portion of the leaflets uh, to make sure that the secondary taver fully expands, doesn't cause uh, coronary occlusion. And um, it just helps facilitate the whole process of that secondary taver implantation. So I think we're going to see in the next three to five years that leaflet modification becomes crucial to the ongoing story of TAVR. It's sort of like the next evolution of TAVR. And there are existing technologies now that do leaflet uh, laceration, but we have our eye on removing a larger most of the portion of the leaflet, which we think will do an even better job. Um, we're development stage, right? so we're we're right in the uh, preclinical phase. and uh, I can tell you that we have sort of all of the elements to figure this out and um, some good funding to get that done. So uh, I'm optimistic and encouraged.
1: Awesome. Well, wishing you guys success. And I want to start jumping into ripping apart some of the the pieces of the puzzle that you've already given us, but giving more clarification to your entrepreneurial journey. So, fundamentally here on the medtech money podcast we want to always come back down to what does it mean to raise capital in medtech and i love this question especially with first-time entrepreneurs because mainly this whole podcast has been able to help out first-time entrepreneurs learn from others as well as meeting others in the entrepreneurial side and a lot of the investors who can share their insights also how they invest but this mechanical recipe or experience if you will of people who have taken the leap of becoming a first-time entrepreneur and not knowing how to raise capital or build a company. There's this transition period, right? and I know we talked about it a little bit earlier on, but you know, sometimes there are physician founders and clinicians who have been practicing, and then they come up with an idea, and then they decide that they wanna start a company and go head first. Other times there's engineers at Medtronic or wherever they may be, but they're product development people and R&D engineers, just like you were talking about for yourself. And you guys have this awesome shower idea, and you're like, "I'm gonna go start a company," but you've never had that responsibility before that. And it's one thing to romanticize about maybe um, an opening and opportunity that you've seen from products that you've been working on in an R&D capacity, or even being a physician. But then taking that idea, and then once you create that idea in your head, put it on a napkin, and then say, "I'm gonna turn this napkin into a company." There's a huge thing that has to happen there of yeah. experience that you have to have or should have, but don't have. And there, then there's that learning curve. So, my question for you after that long preface is Fun. jumped into entrepreneurship and you had to learn how to run and also raise capital for a company for the first time. If you could imagine yourself speaking to a room full of entrepreneurs at that stage, those engineers who want to go start a company or think they have a shower idea, what were the major learning lessons? that you experienced from your first time of going to start your own company
2: and, and also now even the second time around? Yeah. Uh, well, I think the the best thing that you can really have is technology that works, right? I like to say that there's a lot of business or a, a lot of structure that you have to wrap around an idea, but the truth is if the idea works, right, it's a, it's a lot easier to build all that. And I think you have a, a lot more margin, right? So I think when you, if you focus on making sure that the technology works and you can demonstrate that the technology works. And so the, the, the effort isn't to create a company in my mind, honestly, right? Because I'm not a business guy, really. It's, it's less about trying to create a company. It's more about trying to create a technology that works and then fill in the company around it as you need. And that's how I approached essential and that's how I'm approaching exc- excision. I mean, we're doing the minimum that we need to create a company or the minimum that we need to raise the funding that we do. And we focus on on making the technology work. Um, so we don't think about fancy websites or, right? We don't think about big signs or how to equip the space or what color the chairs should be or anything like that. It's all about, you know, how close are we to Home Depot? How close, how close are we to McMaster car? How do we get this? how do we get this space where we can work where we can where we can do what we need to do and most importantly how do we create the models that tell us that we really are on the right track so to me the success comes in in creating the core technology and then reaching out to your network to help you make the right steps or miss the wrong steps with creating a company around that right you know do we do an llc do we do an inc and you know there's lots of reasons to do both and and each circumstance will will you know will play out so i'm sure you're being overly humble when you say you're not a
1: business guy and at the core you're a product development guy which i'm sure you're an excellent product development guy but certainly a learned businessman at this point having gone through what you've gone through but once again speaking to that room of entrepreneurs What then did you do? I mean, if you focus so much on the technology and proving it to work and then fill the company around, like, what are, and I'm sure the whole team is key and crucial, so stick with me, but what are some of those key business hires that you focused on on your first company when you didn't have the experience that could help you become a business guy and build a business, not just a technology?
2: Yeah, I, I think I was lucky enough to have some advisors who are very well versed in the business side. And, you know, look, I was a technology guy, but I ran a large engineering group. So it wasn't like I was a, an inexperienced financial manager. But I, I think the 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 truth is, is that you reach out and get the business guidance when you need it. Right. And um that's really how I played it. So I always felt like um Again, coming from the confidence that everything was was going to work, or that you knew everything was going to work, then it was really just about building the business from the advice of the people that you had to go out and talk to. Right? So, all right, well, wh- what what structure of the company should this be? And we figured that out first, and then you get advice from somebody about okay, what's what should who should I talk to about angel funding? Right? And so there are endless pitches to to the. Um, you know, to the angel community, and then you put together, and if I look back at my pitch decks from that time, right, I mean, they were so bad, they were just so bad, right, so the one thing I would just tell people is just, you get started, and your first couple of pitches aren't going to be good, and you get better, and you figure out what people are looking for, Um, and again, I had the, the fortunate experience of having some individuals that would sit down and say, look, in your pitch deck, you need 15 slides and here's what your 15 slides should say. And I would say to anybody listening out there, if you want to know what those 15 sh- slides should, should say, give me a call and I'll help you with that. And each circumstance is a little different, but I, I got that kind of guidance. So even though I didn't have the experience starting it, um, I sort of was able to show up with not only a technology that worked but a but a business package that sort of made sense and was compelling and it wasn't always right i mean i, I don't I'm, I'm sure you've heard people tell you that they've they've walked out of a out of a pitch or out of a presentation they're just like that i'm never going back there again <laughs> <laughs> and and honestly i've had you know one of the things you have to be willing to do as an entrepreneur is you've got to be willing to fail in the face of your family and friends You have to be willing. You have to be completely willing to do that, and and that's exactly what it. If you're going to put yourself out there and you're going to you're going to give a pitch, it may go well and it may not, but it eventually will get better, and it will certainly it will certainly prevail if the technology works.
1: Great point on the technology working because I think it's a core fundamental. But I also want to dig in a little deeper if you can pull back from those years and also reliving it now. But once again, imagine that you are an engineer who's never raised capital before, right? So the business building, to your point, whether it's advisors or a good couple first hires that come, and also even just your general leadership and financial astuteness when you were an executive over at Kenzie Nash, um, imagine you are an engineer and you've never raised capital before. And Yes, of course, like anything else in life, you got to go through it and you learn along the way. And there is trial and error and that kind of stuff. But think about that first passionate idea that you have. You're turning it into a company and all of a sudden you do have to go out and raise external money. I mean, that initial piece that you prepared yourself for when you didn't know what pro rata was, you didn't know what institutional Mm -hmm. investors were versus you know, angel groups, and you didn't know what a safe note was or a convertible debt versus loans versus actual venture capital, whatever it may be. Um, and you have to go out and raise capital, right? For your first time. And it could be from family and friends. It could be from angels. But that that really mechanical aspect of taking in that first capital or, or even just in general, raising capital. How did you learn that process? Did you sit there with coffee and a book?
2: No, no, not at all. I mean, that was a networking piece of it. Um, so I, I, I was fortunate to have um, the, the counsel that helped me set up the company also really had some good advice on how to go about trying to find some funding and also about how to structure how to structure financing. Right. Um, our first financing came from the Ben Franklin Technology Group, which is a Pennsylvania based uh, funding organization that you know, funds a lot of organizations in the Pennsylvania area or the Philadelphia area in particular. And the truth is, is they had a prescribed way to do it, right? So I really knuckled down um, on those days when I was trying to figure out what to do and said, I'm going to get this application in. I'm going to get this application in. And they had a really prescribed method for this application. And once I got the application in and went through the process of pitching to their investment committee, I think it began to really teach me how exactly do you have to do these pitches? What, What is everybody looking for? And then most importantly, when we were successful in raising that money and finding matching funds, then the concept was a bit validated, right? And that really helped with raising the next funds. So things build on themselves. and but you just have to find a place to get started and find some advice about how that how that fundraising should go. And their model was always convertible debt, right? So they they required, Uh, $250,000 of matching funds, they would give you $250,000 and they would, they had a convertible debt note. And that's, and, you know, even walking through that whole application process, just like all those terms you mentioned, I had to Google, right? I literally had to Google discounted cash flow. Right. <laughs> and you know, you just you spend your life on the technical side and then you've got to go. But the truth is, is they're just all terms. They're concepts that we understand. It's not difficult. It's just you have to get you have to get facile with the lingo. Yep. Um, so I I guess what I would say to starting entrepreneurs is don't be afraid that you don't know something. Because the truth is, is you don't know something and don't worry about it. Just get on with it. Yep. Uh, because you got a job to do, you've got you've got a technology to fund, and you're you're going to feel uncomfortable.
1: You mentioned convertible debt and convertible. Loan. I mean, you you raised a, a seed round now for Excision Medical. You exited Essential Medical. Do you have a preference at this point? Because you know, this day and age, 2023, we have safe notes and convertible debt and convertible notes, and we have price rounds. and not that 2023 has anything to do with it. They've been around for a while, but is there a is there a reason or a preference that you lean towards convertible versus anything else?
2: Yeah, I think it's really just the the basics on the convertible debt, right? It's it's too soon too soon to value the company, and so both for the company's sake and the investor's sake, let's put that off. And you know, you can take somewhere between two and five million dollars in convertible debt before it gets unwieldy and And I think it's it's a perfect vehicle to do it. And I think the other thing that we you know, one of the things you really realize, too, is there's a couple of things about when you're navigating talking with investors or you you really have to understand that you can't just always expect that you're going to keep all of the company. You have to you have to you have to exchange the company for the funds to make the company. Right. And so we were always generous on our convertible notes because we wanted those good investors that were going to continue to support the company. And we realized that when we were successful with the money we had raised, it would be beneficial for everybody down the road. I, I see investors or I see um, startups now where they're really worried about valuation, where they're really worried about how do I keep my share? How do I keep my percentage? And the truth is, is I, I think if you come up with a rational, maybe it's a 20% discount on a convertible note, right? That's just fair for everybody and just get on with it. Um, so for me, it's always been keep the financing simple and don't try to then the next time we do a round, it's going to be 18% then it's going to be 15%. Right? It's just, look, it's going to be, this is going to be how the convertible note goes until we raise a series A and everybody's going to benefit. Let's just get busy. This is an educational point for
1: me. Then I don't want to let it go. If you have an answer, excellent. But you mentioned two to five million in convertible debt before it gets unwieldy. Is there a reason why you said that? I, I don't know. Yeah, the- I
2: think so because what my experience has been is that people are pretty comfortable um, getting in on the early, uh, on the early side of a company. Once you start getting, once you start getting beyond, say, a five million dollar number, right? People are asking, well you know, you should be raising a series A now. It's about time to value you, right? You've got enough where you could be valued, right? And that's the convertible debt really allows you to to buy some time to create a, a rational value for everyone, right? But after a point, you, you can't keep doing it. I think it's okay to go back to convertible debt if you knew, if you need bridge rounds, once you've priced around, but I think it's pretty important for everybody then to price around so everybody knows where they stand. And then if you if you got to go back for a, for a bridge round, and if you need to do convertible debt, that's fine, right? That, that's all good. So I think there's you know there's an appetite in that. It, I don't think convertible debt is a ten million dollar vehicle. Personally,
1: clear, clear. So I, I want to get to a huge and what I call sexy story, which is what we all either want to listen to, aspire for, work really really hard for. Which is med tech startups that have an exit, right? I mean, mm. most people don't start a medical device company or a med tech startup not wanting an exit in some capacity, right? Whether it's an IPO or an acquisition mm. or, you know, or if they have this vision of grandeur of turning into the next med- medtronic, that's fine. But there's there's usually you're building towards something. You're not just building for the sake of building. But you, you're on your second company and you actually did build a company from scratch and then exit it. So I want to tell that story. What is the story of starting, building, and exiting Essential Medical? And then I want to dig into, I don't want to say more importantly, but equally as interesting. Once you've accomplished that high of achieving your goal of Essential Medical and, and exiting that company, when you went through the acquisition, what did that look and feel like? And I'll i will jump in and remind you of the second Yeah, there's
2: of- a lot of questions in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. We're going to cover a lot. But the starting, the building, and, and the exiting aspect of Essential Medical, what is that story?
2: well i think we probably took two million dollars in convertible debt you know with that starting investment from uh ben, T- ben franklin technology partners who by the way if any of them listen to this thank you thank you thank you is a good bunch um and again really helped us sort of validate that we had a business plan right and so creating that initial business plan takes some doing and if you haven't done that before that can be pretty arduous right um so we got that in order and then we just got busy. We created the technology and continued to raise funding. And we had suppliers that were honestly interested in being series A partners. And that we were just lucky with how that worked out. And you know, just so everybody understands, there's a lot of luck in how all of this goes, right? There's there's a reason why maybe one in 10 startups fail or one in 20. I don't know. What's your number, Giovanni? What do you think the number is on success versus failure with startups?
1: I mean, 1 in 10 is a common phrase, I would say. 1 in 10 certainly is a common phrase. You know, 2 in 10, I think, is possible, but I haven't heard 3 and above yet.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you start, you know, you kind of start with, okay, we're at 1 in 20, and then we're at 1 in 15, and then we're at right. 1 in 10, right? And and that's what you're doing, right? The whole time is you're building this, this technology, this story, this company that is uh, more and more likely to be successful, right? Yeah. Um, so our process was really all about, uh, we got sort of into first demand with our first series A, and then to fund a larger study, we needed a series B and we just continued to build. I mean, the, the trick is is to take money, put it to work and and really make a compelling statement for why the company is more valuable than money it took, right? That's um, sort of the business basics 101. But we um, we were always looking to sell which I took that advice to heart. You're always raising money and you're always looking to sell. I mean, we looked at license deals early on in the essential medical history. And as a matter of fact, we had a license deal on the table when we were probably a year and a half old. Mm. But you look at it and then you say, okay, well, wait a minute. Now I'm here and I have this capability and we have these ideas and we have this team and we think we're worth this. And is this deal worth selling the company for versus capitalizing on the opportunity that we have? And that, that philosophy and that thinking really carried all the way through on the literally to the day we sold the company and it got acquired, right? Because there's always an alternative, right? There's always an alternative buyer. Well, if you're lucky, right? There's an alternative buyer or there's an alternative option. And the alternative option for us toward the end was that we were just going to do this ourselves. Because we really felt like by that time, we had such a strong team, such a team that was well integrated and and skilled in all the aspects of like we had figured everything out, Uh, you know, everything from building our own clean room to designing our own hardware, our own devices, our own manufacturing, uh, filing 45 patents. And, you know, we'd figured all this stuff out. We weren't going to be daunted by the fact that we needed to figure out sales and marketing. So we hired sales and marketing staff and we started to think about that. So the best way to get acquired is to not need to be acquired. And I'm sure you've heard that, right? It's just not need to be acquired. You have to set your sights on being successful regardless of the acquisition process. And I can remember back, we would we went to our first animal study. It was super successful. And we were, ooh, we're going to get bought, <laughs> right? And, you know, naively, that's what you think throughout the whole process. Oh, we're going to, f- we finished our first 50 patients in Europe. We're going to get bought now. And then... And then at some point in time, you realize this entity is is valuable and successful enough that we really need to consider whether or not we want to be bought. And I think that's honestly the best time to really be, if you're lucky enough to be in that position, I think then the acquisition process is that it's worth going through, right? Because I think, yeah. So we we were actually acquired right before PMA approval. Um, with milestones on PMA approval, and um, all of that went swimmingly. So, um, yeah. Uh, and before we how- get it,
1: before we get into the actual acquisition process, then, and what you can share about that, um, I did want to ask one question that you sparked when you were telling your story. In medtech startups, what do you think executives or the startups themselves waste the most money on? Like when you go out and raise money, and you are saying to your investors, I need 4 million for this milestone, or I need 7 million for that milestone or 20 for that, whatever it may be. And then you get it. And then you have to go deploy money, but I'm sure you've seen money get put to work excellently. And I'm sure you've regretted some money that you're like, wow, we definitely didn't need to spend on that. But even with your own personal experience and maybe some other, um, friends of yours that you might know in the industry, just in general, your your objective opinion on what do startups
2: waste money on? Uh, you know, Honestly, I think startups waste money on uh, on structure they don't need, on systems and processes they may not need, right? And part of that is making sure you sort of scare away the corporate types that might want to join the team. And you really just have to focus on, again, just the technology working and what are the bare bones of getting the technology working. So I would say, honestly, it's structure, it's facility, right? um it's those comfortable aspects of working at a place that make it feel like it's the job you've always wanted to have and you know I've I've really had to wrestle with this a little bit when I see startups where there's free coffee and lots of food and all of that and to me that bothers me right and um and uh, to this day and probably you know a you make your own coffee from a little filter cup where it's five cents a cup instead of a dollar a cup. And there's no fancy coffee maker at my place, right? So I I think, you know, startups can get not only where there's funds that are wasted, but it's also a philosophy of we have to do everything as inexpensively as possible. We've borrowed money to do this. And we need to return a, a good return to the investors that we've borrowed this money from. And we can't do it with... You know, spending money on unnecessary things. Um, I sometimes think um, presentations and animations that are too markety or too gimmicky, I think that's a that can be a waste, but that's a real balance, right? And so honestly, you asked me earlier, what's the trick of a CEO? And I think one of the hardest things as a CEO is to figure out where to spend the money most efficiently.
1: I'm glad I asked the question. And and I wanted to go back to the acquisition piece because now I think that's important. I don't think we've ever really harped on it that, that much before. We also are lucky when we have an opportunity to interview people like yourself that have successfully gone through an exit, because as we just talked about, not many startups ultimately go there. So what you can share, you know, you went from being a product development guy to an entrepreneur, and then there was that learning lesson of actually starting a company. But then there was this first time experience of going through an acquisition and then going back to working for a company, even though it acquired you, but back to work for a big company. What was that learning curve that you went through when you went through that acquisition uh, with essential medical and you were bought by Teleflex? Like how did that whole thing look and feel? And maybe even some insights as to all those aspiring or almost acquired companies would be like, this is what you can expect.
2: Mm, yeah. well, All good questions. Um, well, for us, I think we, at the time we were, the time we were acquired, we had three opportunities and, um, naturally your first job is to make sure that you make the right decision for the investors, right. Or for the shareholders. And so, even though you may have all these other views of how things should go, your job is to is to synthesize what you think the best experience or the best return for the investors will be. So that's honestly, you know, at the end of the day, that's my job, right? Um, but there's also just a real sort of a fit and an understanding of what the company that is acquiring is hoping to do with the technology and how that what that might mean, right? So I think in our case, we selected a partner um, based on the fact that we felt very comfortable that they understood our culture, that they understood the value of the product in the marketplace, and just as importantly, they understood the value of the product to them and their future plans. So we felt like we had a really good home for our baby. And so everybody felt that way. And it was a big part of not only was the, you know, the business side of things, right. There was also just a real good fit with sort of philosophy and, and the phase that, and, you know, it's, we all know it's Teleflex and where Teleflex was, was building their interventional business. Um, we felt Manta was going to make a big difference and we wanted that to happen. Um, so we were really excited uh, with the Teleflex team and, I think their acquisition process was really well done. I think they, they, I've never met so many people turn up with so much heart to help make this successful. Now, the truth of that then becomes is that they're a big company. And I think they, you know, often big companies look out and they see these little entities that they wish they could be. And they, I know they want to be that. And I think what we learned pretty early on is it's just really, really hard in their world to become who we are. And it was way easier for us to become them. And I, you know, that's exactly how it is. Um, So we were assimilated, (laughs) you know, we were definitely assimilated. And I can tell you that at every level, everybody that I worked with was really good about how that happened. But they also there was just a certain momentum at a corporate level that can't be fixed or altered. We were too small, and they're in the in the scope of their business activities, to really really change the dilution factor. You know, so yeah, yeah.
1: So the, the, I, I want to put a little bit of cloud and sky talk around that, then, because once again, there are. Tens, hundreds, let's call it thousands, I don't think millions, but thousands for sure, of entrepreneurs who are building to have what you accomplished, right? Like they want, they want to see what all the the the, the movies and the shows on Netflix talk about becoming rich and selling off companies and all that. And mm-hmm. it can tame that down in med tech because I think a lot of us do this for a different purpose, right? I mean, we're not in high tech, we're we're in med tech. And of course it's business at the end of the day. And there is a lot of money to be made in this industry, but I guess from your, your personal experience is going through an exit and building and putting all those years and effort into it. Is it what it's expected to be, or should you be mentally prepared to be like, when we sell, we're no longer us, we're selling and whatever happens, happens and it's out of our control. But you know, if it succeeds and we go through excellent, but you know, when we are no longer essential medical hypothetically and we become teleflex hypothetically, aka any acquisition in MedTech. Is it really like an ending of a chapter and a beginning of a new one? And you can choose whether or not you're gonna stay on with that because it is very, very different after you're done.
2: Yeah, it really is. Uh it is well, like the best I can tell you is it's a pretty much a, an emotional roller coaster, right? I mean, it's everything from feeling like you have sold out, right? To understanding that it's the right thing to do for the investors at the right time. Um, that this is, this is a great deal um, from both sides. Um, but that doesn't change maybe how you feel about it emotionally. So I would say if you're you're lucky enough to have an acquisition, you can expect everything from, you know, the sheer terror of the deal falling apart, to the um, euphoria of it being successful, and then the emotional um, bedrock of, of having sold your baby and no longer being CEO or whoever you were, right? Um, you know, Telflex didn't need another CEO, um, but I liked my CEO job <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and I love my team. And I loved coming to work every day and hanging out with that team and being awesome and watching them be awesome. And you, but you have to trade that in for the financial upside, or you have to trade that in for the acquisition. It's just the way it is. Um, but then, yeah, there's a lot of sellers' remorse, right? And now, and I hope there wasn't a lot of buyers' remorse on their side, um, but there was. There was definitely sellers' remorse on from all levels of the organization, right? Anybody that was because they wondered about what's going to happen to me, and you know, and and some of it you can, some of it you can shield them against, and some of it you can't,
1: right? Which is now my perfect segue to my next question is this buyer's remorse of selling your company, but now here we are, fast forward a few years, and now you started another one. And so once again, going back to this idea of people who want to be entrepreneurs romantically, maybe they're doing it right now for the first time, maybe they haven't done it yet, but want to embark on it. and this whole idea of, let me build a company, let me go sell it for tens, hundreds, millions, if not billions, and that's what I wanna do, just like everyone else is fanfaring yeah. about. Um, but then when you do that, like people only really, if they're not this serial entrepreneur DNA, they really only envision themselves doing it once so that they can get that one-time check that's going to change their life. And then they're going to go drink Mai Tais on a beach for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Or go to every country and backpack and do whatever they always wanted to do. Because for the first time ever, money isn't a limiting factor at all. Mm -hmm. And life is great and you can go do whatever you want. Um, But once again, we've had the fortune of interviewing a few serial entrepreneurs on this podcast series. And I have one sitting in front of me right now because here you are moving to Vienna after you sell, and then coming up with an idea after you've taken some time for yourself and did some biking around Europe. And then you came up with an idea, and now you're you're on your second company. I mean, why in the world would you keep... Oh, why well, do that? <laughs> yeah. What, like, what, what, what makes serial entrepreneurs like you different from not only just regular people, and I know that you're a regular person at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah,
2: I'm a, I'm a very regular guy. So, And
1: I get that. I, and, I, and I'm with you on that one, right? But there, there is something about chasing a dream and accomplishing it that it's life altering where you could be whoever you want to be, whatever you want to be, because for the first time, economics aren't a factor. And then you show back up to work on Monday and you do it all over again, which is not you know, the norm, right? And so what, what separates serial entrepreneurs?
2: Hmm. Uh, You know what, I think it's just a belief that they can do it. And I think there's a satisfaction in doing it right. So I think walking away from it's hard, because whatever else you're doing is interesting for a while. Um, But the truth is, is you, if you're, if you've done this, you're doing something pretty unique and it's something that you really enjoy doing right you and, and and it's almost hard to think of yourself otherwise right there's a there's a huge identity crisis when you go drink mai tais on the beach right? and i've tried that a bit you know but but there's a huge identity crisis with that and so people people underestimate the identity that you form about yourself as you evolve into the, the entrepreneur i don't even honestly know that I put myself in that category. But the truth is, is that this is what we do. And I can't imagine not doing it. And so there's a part where you want to take time to do other things. There's a part where you want to pick and choose a little bit about what you do. Right. I don't want to write a design control procedure ever again. (laughs) But, you know, then there's the thing that really makes you tick. And for I'm going to say that for any serial entrepreneur out there, the thing that makes them tick is trying to do something that looks interesting, maybe can't be done and is kind of pretty cool to try. And that's what I'm doing on the second go, right? I I think we have a really interesting technology. I think there's a huge unmet need. I think there's a an opportunity to do something really cool and I love building I love building enthusiastic and productive teams and being part of that team. Uh, so that's the fun of it, and that's worth the work, um, and it, it becomes a balance, right, I think as you have some freedom, as you mentioned earlier, I think you, again, you, you pick and choose a little bit what you do, you try to delegate more, um, in the beginning, you know, like we did everything, uh, and this go-around, it's a little, it's a little different, it's going to be interesting, I'd love to talk to you in two, three years, and see how this worked out, um, because, honestly, every day in an entrepreneur's life is an experiment.
1: <laughs> 100%. I couldn't agree more. And and I was debating on, I know we have just a few more minutes left, and I, if you don't mind, just very, very high level. And I was debating on whether or not to even ask this question, but I am a structural heart and heart valve geek at the end of the day. That's mm-hmm. how I started my career. I've, I've been involved in this wild, wild west of transcatheter heart valves being developed. Yeah. Is um, there
2: any cooler technology? I, I love
1: it. I I, I mean, I, I'm a med tech guy at heart. And I love just in general technology for the medical industry, because yeah. we have brain computer interfaces and women's health is on the rise, oh, yeah. surgical robotics and all that stuff. But I will tell you, and even for all those listening, I have a no pun intended, an incredible weak spot in my heart for structural heart. Yeah. And I legitimately love the innovation. And, you know, I, and it's also one that I followed very, very closely. And, you know, the crazy summer of 2015 with three trans three transcatheter mitral valve replacement acquisitions, and, you know, Faltech Cardio getting acquired by Edwards in 2016, and he's on interventional by Levinova, and you can keep on going on. And there's a bunch that's happened. And obviously, all starting with PVT getting acquired by Edwards back in I'm always going to forget this, 2002 or 2003, but either way, um, this field is just phenomenal. And and then you start getting into the craziness of, you know, E-Valve was acquired by Abbott. And, you know, as of recently, there's a transcatheter mitral valve repair alongside MitraClip, which is now the Pascal by Edwards. But, you know, there's been a long time in this innovative field with Havi being owned by very few dominant players. And then mitral still strongly lagging behind and tricuspid on the rise, but still not even there yet. So mm-hmm. I, I geek out because there's a story to tell on innovation that we're literally ge- being able to watch in front of us right now. But now that I have a structural heart guy in front of me, um, what is the state of structural heart from your perspective? You know, we have tavi, we have mitral, we have tricuspid. There's also pulmonary as the fourth valve. But I got a structural heart guy in front of me. I just want to geek out for a couple of minutes on the state of structural heart before we sign off.
2: Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I think much of this is going to come down to valve durability, right? So I I really think that if there can be a technology where the valves are way more durable than they are both either on the surgical side or on, because sometimes there's, you know, the TAVR is not going to completely replace surgical valves if, if, you know, and it's maybe overtaken things now, but I think the durability To me, remains the key question, right? And understanding and preventing the body's process for how these valves get attacked, right? And so, is there are there methods where patients can change their lifestyle? Are there, you know, technologies that can get involved where either the valves don't deteriorate as quickly as they do, can last longer, or um, how do we intervene on them sooner before they become such a difficult Right. How do you do a a, say percutaneous intervention on a valve early on before it becomes such a surgical disaster? Right. Because these these surgeries and these procedures can be difficult. So the question that I think becomes for the whole field is when how do you get valves that last longer and how do you intervene on them sooner? So to me, I like to think about when's the right time. I mean, you know, this is going to happen. You know, you're going to have to intervene on it. Uh, Why are we waiting three years? right? Let's do something now when it's simpler, when you're healthier. And I wonder where that, when that mindset will, if it will ever happen in our, you know, sort of in our healthcare. And I hope it does. I hope it does. And I hope the technologies facilitate that. So I also want to take a, you know, just like I'm taking the statin now, I want to take a pill that, that makes sure my valves don't go bad, right? (laughs) So to come alongside and help us with this, right?
1: That, that could be your third company after you exit excision medical, you could yeah. send entrepreneurship to a new level, learn, learn pharma. and then Yeah.
2: Could- oh, do a dual device.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to say, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for just geeking out with me right now in structure heart, but also just telling that entrepreneurial story of going from product development expert to entrepreneur for the first time to what it really means to raise capital and build a company. And some of those, hard things about hard things of doing so and then also that full story of going through an exit is it really what we all look for when we start companies to begin with and is it all what it's cracked up to see be and usually it is but also you know like you said buyers remorse and it's an emotional roller coaster but ultimately um it's an amazing experience as an entrepreneur to go through and then finally wrapping that up with what does it truly mean to be a serial entrepreneur so greg walters founder and ceo of excision medical i want to say thank you so much for your time once again i'm going to give a shout out to joe rafferty for introducing us and then also this is the medtech money podcast series where we just demystified raising and investing capital in MedTech. thank you so much greg
2: you bet thank you Giovanni.
0: thank you for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and leave a review if you need anything from the podcast you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.